David inquires of God whether he should defend the city of Kila from the Philistines, even though he may be greatly disappointed by their betrayal. This is the 49th sermon in the series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Roll covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 23. Chapter 23, the first 14 verses. 1 through 14 of Samuel chapter 23. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Keilah, and they rob the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we be afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord yet again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with a great slaughter. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. And it came to pass when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David to Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand, and it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah, and Saul said, God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that hath gates and bars. And Saul called all the people together to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him, and he said to Abathar, the priest, Bring hither the ephod, bring hither the ephod, then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. Then David and his men, which were about six hundred, arose and departed out of Keilah, and went whithersoever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah, and he forbear to go forth. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians in chapter 6, Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, by the same spirit that moved the prophets of God, Moses and the psalmists, so does Paul write. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. 
Now David's victory over the Philistines was now complete, but not without consequence. And we see this in verse 5. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote them with the great slaughter. So David saved. He's becoming here the salvation of God in the flesh to bring Keilah out of their bondage to the Philistines. He is their redeemer in a very real sense. But this doesn't come without consequence. In accordance with David's character and his trust in God, he first, before he even thinks about going down to fight the Philistines, he first asks God if he should fight for the inhabitants of Keilah. David would only act on the command of God. And so, he takes the ephod, a symbolic gesture of his representation of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, and is given the go-ahead from God. Saul, however, is, as we've seen, is apprised of David's whereabouts and makes ready to trap him in the city. We see this in verse 7. And it was told Saul that David was come to Keilah, and Saul, notice what he says, God hath delivered him into mine hand, for he is shut in by entering into a town that has gates and bars. Now it must be obvious to the astute reader that if Saul knew of David's whereabouts, and so quickly, he must have had an intelligence apparatus in place. This was the only way that he could have known of David's location, what David was doing. And so we can be certain that not everyone loved David because people were informing on him. In fact, we can also be certain that there was those who were still loyal to Saul those in his loyal army, still loyal to him, and his spies were well well equipped to figure out where David was hiding and where he would be next. And this is a very important lesson. The enemy always has its spies ready to target the godly in order to betray them into their trusted wicked rulers. And this is why whenever the church lives during a period of tyranny and murderous intention, they must be acutely aware of this troubling fact that God has taught us that the wicked always have their spies. In other words, the people of God, especially in our day today, must live in a very cunning fashion. With today's technology, the state has its eyes and ears everywhere, even within the secret chambers of your home. Our nation has become the surveillance state, and we would do well to recognize the era that we are in. Some, however, would argue this way, especially Christians. I am a good person. I am no threat to the state. I have no ill intentions, no criminal intentions against anyone, and therefore I have nothing to hide. David had nothing to hide either. And yet Saul was committed to his assassination, even if it meant bringing trumped-up charges against him for treason and insurrection. Christians, because the state seeks to be God, and the thing that is stopping them from realizing the fact that they are not God, is the church. So they target the innocent, and that is what the tyrannical evil state does. Commentator, the Reverend Phillips, observes, he says, The Bible reveals that we are pursued by a mighty and dreadful enemy who seeks to destroy us. David had done no evil to Saul, yet Saul was bent upon destroying him Utterly. That is what the wicked want. They want to eradicate the knowledge of Christ from the world, and the only way to do that is to take the witness of the church from the face of the earth. So to say, I am no threat, is to be ignorant. So we see this played out in our own flesh and in the world around us. On the individual level, now remember, we have a battle on two fronts. On the individual level, 
on the personal level. The enemy of sin dwells within our flesh and forever, as long as we live on this earth, as long as we are still in the body of this death, in Adam's tomb, the flesh will forever plague us. And while the enemy in the world around us consists of everything and everyone that seeks to be as God by destroying the Christian witness in the world, we have to be on guard. Phillips adds this, our enemy's hatred is not easily avoided. You see, David had gone to Kila with the kind and caring motives of assisting them in their battle against the dreaded Philistines. He did this even though the possibility existed that the men of Kila would be threatened by Saul even after David restores them, defends them, restores to them their, their economic stability. The people of Kila, being intimidated by Saul may still give up David to Saul. That could have probably been in the back of his mind. And that's why he's asking God, will they do this thing? And so providentially, by means of his spies, Saul finds out where David is to be next. Now consider Saul's misreading of God's providence. And that's what the wicked do. They always misread God's providence. Saul believes, first of all, Saul believed that he was in the right. Now Saul believes that God had orchestrated this knowledge of David's whereabouts as an act of divine assistance in order to destroy David and solidify his dynasty. Now while he was correct in thinking that this was God's providential workings, he was very wrong in understanding why God allowed him to find out where David was. It was to frustrate Saul. Note his mistake. And Saul said, God had delivered him into mine hand. For he is shut in by the entering into the town that had gates and bars. Now this shows us that even wicked men sometimes believe that God is on their side. We see this daily in the news. And what this shows is the depth of their blindness, especially here in this case study, the depth of the blindness of Saul's mind and heart. See, Saul hadn't a clue as to the blackness of his evil heart. So it was so narcissistic that he really believed that, that God was on his side and that to murder God's anointed was right. The state believes that when we silence Christians, we're doing the right thing. The state believes that when we give this mandate or that mandate to destroy liberty, we're doing the right thing. So it was so narcissistic that he really believed that he was doing the right thing by destroying God's anointed. And that was God's will for him to know where David was to help him in his evil deed. And this is why I am so astonished when evil politicians, tyrannical rulers, and those that are in positions of power claim a relationship with God. Remember, Saul was claiming a relationship with God. Oh, God is telling me this. God is telling me that. God is helping me do this. God is helping me do that. It astonishes me even more when evil rulers say, we prayed about this. We have to pray about this. About this thing or that thing when in fact what they're about to pray about is categorically condemned by the very God who they're praying to, or who they think they're praying to. Saul thought that David was being delivered into his murderous hands, but he was dead wrong. God was not with Saul. God is not with the wicked. God is not with the evil state. God was not with Saul, but he was with David. God is not with the wicked, but he is with his church. And through this trial and his disappointment with the men of Keilah, David was being further groomed. God's providence was not for Saul's benefit. It was, however, for David's. You think that when David delivered Keilah, 
then the providential orchestration of God would be that Kila was so uh, incredibly thankful that they stood next to David and they, they supported him. No, 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 that wouldn't be God's will. God was going to further disappoint David to groom him even more. His skin had to be thicker. So God's providence was not for Saul's benefit that the men of Keilah would deliver up David, but for David's. And this teaches us that even negative providences which come into our lives are often orchestrated for our maturation or our future blessedness as it was in David's situation. Remember, this was maturing David. It was going to set him up for a future glory. Sometimes that's what our afflictions are for, for a future blessedness. So we cannot shun these negative, as we term them providences, but embrace them. Thinking that God was with him, Saul calls his soldiers to war, not against the Philistines, where he should have been fighting, who attacked Keilah, but against David. And Saul called all the people together to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege, note, not the Philistines, verse 8, but David and his men. And this is just another thing that identifies a tyrant from the legitimate ruler. A tyrant often leaves off fighting real national enemies and decides to hunt his own people. We see this here with Saul. Saul was not the only one who knew things from his loyal spies. Saul knew where David was. Oh, he was going to find David because his spies had told him, but David too had his spies. He had his loyal spies as well. And we see this in verse 9. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. So it may be safe to assume that the intel, in this case, to David, came from either Jonathan, since Jonathan was still looking out for David. He was in the camp of his father. He would have been in close company with Saul. He would have understood what Saul was thinking, what his orders were for his army. He would have been privy to his plans. Or maybe even one or more of the men of Keilah was thankful for what David did and said, you know what, uh, I hear the rumblings in my own camp that we're going to deliver you up, so you, you better leave. So God will always tell us what is necessary for us to be preserved. Knowing that Saul was determined to kill him, David seeks the face of God. Notice again, he calls upon God. He calls upon God through the priest, Abitar, in order to make certain of Keilah's intention. And we see this in verses 10 and 11. He asks, Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hands? Will Saul come down as I serve in that herd? And of course, the answer is yes. So number one, firstly, David was concerned that in Saul's wrath, he would not only hunt David, but he would, and his men... Of course, David's concerned about his men, but he would also hunt the people of Keilah. If Keilah did not submit to everything that Saul wanted, David knew the intention of Saul. Saul would just wipe them out. He did so with all the priests. Why would he not do this to Keilah? So here we find a man that is concerned, not only about himself. You know, that's easy. We're always concerned about ourselves. But are we concerned to the bigger group of God's people? And this tells us that David did not want his brethren to suffer because of him. Naturally, he's concerned, even though they may betray him, but he loved them. Here is a real leader, a man of compassion, a man thinking outside of his own bubble. I think we need to start thinking outside of our own bubble. Thinking about not only here, our brethren in our church, our small community, but the church of Jesus Christ is massive. It's in all areas of the world. We need to start thinking about them and praying for them. Second, 
Suspecting that the men of Keilah might turn against him, David asks if that is the case. And this also tells us something about David. He knew the nature of man. He anticipated this might be the problem. They may be intimidated enough by Saul. They may want to to stand alongside Saul since Saul had the bigger army, that Saul was in possession of power. They may stand alongside him. And he knew the nature of man, that man was fearful and intimidated by man. He knew that mankind in their natural state was fearful of the power of the state as a result of their lack of fear from the power of God. Thirdly, David then wants to make sure that Saul's intention is to enter the city to find David. And David asks three things. These are David's three requests. And again, observe how David inquires of the Lord before he does anything. I'm going to repeat that because this is the thrust. This is the thrust. This is the thrust of this message. Before David does anything, he seeks the counsel of God. Now, while he was willing to endanger himself for the protection of the men of Keilah against the Philistines, he is careful to understand the aftermath of the battle and the entire situation surrounding that victory and what he should do by asking God for his counsel. David understood that God blesses all those that turn to him for guidance. You cannot go on your own, especially in grave decisions that we make, even some small decisions. David was awaiting a word from the Lord. He was searching God's will for his own will. And this is perhaps why he wrote in Psalm 119, in Psalm 19, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, notice here, Psalm 19, verse 11, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So what we see here is a competent, godly leader who is being taught to lead and rule by the Word of God. Now this isn't only a message for those who lead armies or those who lead in the affairs of state, but for fathers, ecclesiastical officers. We must be competent in the Word of God in order to be competent leaders by the word of God. Now those leaders, those mature godly leaders, understand the importance of consulting with God on every issue, especially every issue of consequence. God then answers faithful David by confirming that Saul entered into the city to kill him, but he also confirms that the men of Keilah will betray him to Saul. And we see this in verse 12. Then said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. Now, This must have been a bitter pill to swallow, especially since David had probably sacrificing his own safety for the men of Keilah. He was putting himself in harm's way for the men of Keilah. And he was going to deliver them by protecting them 
not only their lives, but all their possessions, their economic future was in the hand of David. And yet they were going to betray him. And yet, David risks his life. The life of his army, the men of Keilah, would now side with Saul against the very man that would save them from the wicked Philistines. And this was a very, very bitter disappointment. But that's what life is all about, isn't it? Bitter betrayal, the Lord himself being betrayed by the people that he would even seek to save. Even Peter, who denied him. Now David immediately obeys the warning of God. Notice, immediately obeys the word of God and removes himself and his men to the mountains of the wilderness. Verse 13, Then David and his men, which were about 600, arose and departed out of Keilah and went with us wherever they could go. And it was told Saul that David was escaped from Keilah and he forbore to go forth. So again, we see that Saul had his spies who informed on David's whereabouts. And these informants were most likely some of the men of the city of Keilah. Note now how David's obedience in prayer solidifies his reigning legitimacy and his reward. This is making the man a man of leadership. The Reverend Philip explains again, he says, David reigns through God's word, and David is rescued through God's word. Let me repeat that. David reigns, he rules, through God's word, and is rescued through God's word. He continues, first, Consider how David reigned over his little army by, by appealing to God's word. When the people expressed their alarm at the idea of attempting to rescue Keilah, David did not resort to his own reasoning, which could easily fail, or to coercion. Remember what Saul did. He was cutting up the animals. He was threatening. Instead, he agreed to inquire of God's word once more. In this manner... David shows the basis of effective Christian leadership even today. In this manner, David shows us the basis of effective Christian leadership even today. True spiritual leaders are not those who motivate God's people by their dynamic personality, by appeals to worldly profit, or by the coercive manipulation of guilt or abuse. Rather, true Christian leadership is based upon the plain statements of the Word of God. God's Word always gives clear direction and to what action should be taken in difficult as well as in everyday situations. Whether we are asking how to be more faithful as an individual Christian man or woman, or a better witness by our words and our deeds, or a better husband, or a better father, a better wife, a better mother, a better son, or a better daughter, we ask God's counsel. We always revert to God's counsel. And whenever we ask of His counsel, God provides us a secure path to walk in. And if we don't have that secure path and we go by our own reason, our own, what I call very sarcastically, our sanctified common sense, we will go astray. So when we look to God, He rescues us from evil, as He did with David. The pathways outside of the counsel of God are pathways of difficulty and may even result in 
destruction. His word is his promise of safety and deliverance. It is his word of wisdom and understanding which we are called to embrace and follow. True Christian leadership always asks for instruction through the promises God gives from his revelation. A.W. Pink adds this. He says, David did not storm at his men and denounce them as cowards, nor did he argue and attempt to reason with them. Notice, disdaining his own wisdom feeling his utter dependency upon God. This is David we're talking about. He felt he, this leader, the giant killer himself, felt himself dependent upon God, and more especially for their benefit, to set before them a godly example, he turned once more to Jehovah. Consider how David's obedience was rewarded. First, David was able to unify his men in the face of great danger. And he did this, how did he do this? By praying and appealing to God. First, in regard to whether or not he should fight the Philistines, and second, whether or not he should remain in the city. Now, once he received God's instruction, the army was able to function as one man with one mind. They were secure that this was God's will. David's prayers and the answer that God gave him was the unifying factor. Secondly, David's obedience also brought confidence to the army. They were able to experience the reality that God was indeed with David and that God was on his side against the tyrant King Saul. And so what we must look for in godly leadership is a man who consults God on every issue. Now fathers, this is incumbent upon you, because you are the head, the priest of your house. Whether you like it or not, that's your responsibility. And you can't tell God one day, well, you know, I really didn't want to take my responsibility too seriously. Tough. It's what you have. It's given to you by creation and by commandment. And so what we look for in godly leadership is a man who consults God on every issue. And that brings confidence and unity. There is yet another lesson from this historical narrative. Escaping and hiding from an enemy who is obviously stronger. And remember, God keeps reminding us that David only had had 600 men, where Saul had the whole army. So escaping and hiding from an enemy who is obviously stronger and better equipped is not cowardice, it's wisdom. David assessed Saul's army and realized with just 600 men at his side, he was no match for the king's army. And so it was the better part of wisdom on David's part to escape and hide. Note also that David did not stand his ground at this point. He ran. That was wisdom. He avoided confrontation, which he knew would turn out very badly. And this too was a wise strategy since God had not given David any inclination that he should meet Saul in face-to-face combat. He told him to run. That was the godly counsel. Sometimes you have to turn around and run. It would have been very easy for David to think that he could stand before Saul because he stood before Goliath. Why not Saul? But David did not let that victory go to his head. He remained humble. He remained dependent upon God and asked for his counsel. And these lessons are for us as we contemplate how we are to deal with our enemies. Sometimes we run. Sometimes we don't want to confront with them. You know, in, in, in our hubris, we want to debate and win them for Jesus. That might not be God's will. So sometimes we have to avoid confrontation. Now sometimes we hide. Sometimes we deceive, as Rahab did, as the midwives did. And sometimes, depending on God's will, we meet them head on. We must use wisdom, however, which can only be achieved through faithful prayer and the reading of the scriptures. 
We also should be very skilled in reading the history of the church. How did God's people respond to confrontation? Whether it is through the scriptural confrontations or the historical church. We must use wisdom. Now David was adept at discovering God's will. And you ask, well, how was he so skilled in discovering God's will? How did he know? Because he was a man of faith. He loved God. He trusted God. But he was a man of prayer. He was praying constantly. So how do we, in our modern day, without the Urim and the Thurim, and without the Ephod that the priests used to discern God's will, and without the direct revelation of the Lord's will, how are we to know the will of God? And the answer is so simple. The will of God are His commandments. Written in the Scripture written in his revelation, the Bible. And we are commanded to follow them. The answer is so simple. And yet, we have yet to embrace it. To know the scripture is to know the mind and the will of God. I will say this again. It is not enough to learn of the scripture from the teaching of the pulpit. You must learn the scripture from your own study and reading of the Word of God. Theologian and author Sinclair Ferguson offers a number of specifics in his book, Discovering God's Will. Because isn't that what we want? We want to know what God's will is for us. I want to know what God's will is for my child, my son, my daughter. Whether I'm going to make this purchase or that purchase. Whether I'm going to go here or go there. Do this or do that. Don't we want to know? We should want to know if we're Christians. So how do we discover God's will? First, whenever we are faced with a choice, and daily we are faced with a myriad of choices, we should ask God for what the Bible commands, what it prohibits, and what it allows. In other words, Ferguson says this, No action which is contrary to the plain word of God can ever be legitimate for the Christian. How many times have I heard, yeah, but I prayed about it. You prayed about it? The Bible says don't do it. Yeah, but I prayed about it. Oh, now you're telling me that you are going to do this that the Bible says don't do. Well, I prayed about it and you know, my conscience is clear. Well, your conscience is is Adamic. This is why we need to familiarize ourselves firstly with the Ten Commandments And from there, the entirety of God's revelation. Secondly, whenever making decisions, Christians are to consider which options are wise and beneficial according to the scriptures. So you ask the question. Here's the question. Is my action profitable? And is it in line with biblical principles and priorities? Remember where your treasure is, where your heart is rather, where your heart is, there will be your treasure. Or where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. So wherever your heart is, that's where you will focus. Is my action profitable? And is it in line with biblical principles? Even if an action is not expressly forbidden, not expressly forbidden, if it is not beneficial, it's to be avoided. In other words, well, honey, I want to buy a motorcycle. And there's nothing in the Bible that says I shouldn't buy this motorcycle. Nothing in the Bible. So you've got to prove to me, honey, that I can't buy this motorcycle. But now you ask the question, is it profitable? 
What are you going to use it for? Is it dangerous? Should you not be purchasing that motorcycle because you have other bills to pay? Oh, whatever. So it may not be condemned in Scripture, but it may not be profitable. Thirdly, Christians should then ask, what effect a given choice or decision is likely to have on others? What effect a given choice or decision is likely to... Oh, now we have to think about others? Honey, you know, we're in our older age now. We're retired. We have a good income and all of these things. The children are grown and I'm going to buy myself a brand new Bema. I'm going to spend fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. We can do it. We can afford it. We have the money. No problem. And your wife says to you, honey, uh, uh, something's not right. You say, well, I checked the consumer guide. Everything is right. It's a good car. It's got a good retail value when you sell it. Everything is great. It's good. I checked out all the details. Nothing in the Bible says that it's frivolous. And you say, well, honey, I don't think it's right. And then the husband gets angry. Well, you can't prove. And then she comes to the revelation. Well, you know what? How is it going to affect everyone else? You're going to drive up as pastor of the church and you're going to drive up in a brand new Bema. And you've got families struggling to keep their one car on the road. It affects other people. That would not be a good decision. So we have to ask, does my choice, does my decision, how will my choice, my decision affect my wife, my husband, my family, my church? other relatives, the community at large. Moreover, how will my choice directly affect my witness before God and my effectiveness in the advancement of the kingdom? You know, the apostle warns that our choices should never negatively affect the work of God by making others stumble. Would I be making someone stumble? Number four, when making decisions... Christians should also consider the historical examples and illustration from Scripture. Paul encourages the members of the church at Corinth to follow his example as he follows the example of Christ. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ. So whenever we are tempted, tried, or when we are brought to our knees in suffering, we must follow the example of the Lord and the example of His faithful men of Scripture. Notice what Peter says. In 1 Peter 2.20 and following, For what glory is it, if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently? This is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Notice what Ferguson comments. He adds this, The chief need that we have, therefore is that of increased familiarity with and sensitivity to the wisdom of His Word accompanying a mind increasingly shaped, increasingly shaped by the Scripture is a heart warmed by frequently meeting with the Lord in prayer. The great Puritan John Newton adds this, he says, How then may the Lord's guidance be expected? How do we expect the Lord to guide us? In general... He guides and directs His people by affording them, in answer to prayer, the light of His Holy Spirit, which enables them to understand and to love the Scriptures. The Word of God is to furnish us with just principles, right apprehensions to regulate our judgments and affections, and thereby influence and direct our conduct. 
So you see, it all goes back to the word of God. And so knowing that Saul was determined to hunt him and kill him, David goes to the mountains for safety. So why the mountains? The final question is, why the mountains? Well, the practical significance is obvious that there is, a, uh, of course, a, a benefit to be in the mountains, but there's also a, a spiritual significance that may offer some lessons of comfort to us. Consider first the practicality of hiding in a mountain or in a mountain region. Mountains have always been a place where an army could hold up and being elevated have a superior vantage point in observing the terrain around them as well as an elevated uh, military advantage. They could see the enemy coming from afar. They can be elevated over them and getting a, a better shot uh, with, the, with their arrows, their spears, and what have you. So the mountains have always been a beneficial terrain to place an army. The scripture speaks of mountains as a place of security. When God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he told Lot to escape to a mountain in Genesis 19:17. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. In verse 30, And Lot went up, out of Zoar, and dwelt in the mountain, and his two daughters with him, for he feared to dwell in Zoar, and he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. In Psalm 11, 1, and Psalm 37, In the Lord put I my trust. How shall you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Lord, by thy favor thou hast made my mountain to stand strong. So the idea of mountains being secure, a place of security, is throughout the Holy Scripture. Now, while the mountains are beneficial for physical security and geographical security, they are a representation of God's security, of God's holy sanctuary, which is often synonymous with the church. So whenever you read about mountains, he's talking about the security of God, the security of his people, the security of his church, the security of his body. Sinai was symbolic of the throne room of God. His holy abode, his sanctuary, his kingdom majesty. Solomon calls it the mountain of myrrh and frankincense, since these point to the anointing of the Lord and his atonement power for the church. We see this in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 6. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, pointing back to Christ, his atonement. Isaiah is very clear in describing the meaning of the mountain of the Lord in Isaiah 2. Beginning in verse 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, above all other mountains in other words, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it, and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, that's where we get our discretion from, the law of God, our decision-making comes from the law of God and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In Isaiah 11.9 and Isaiah 25.6, we read this. They, the wicked, shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make all the people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. So the mountain is speaking of the security that God gives his people, the church, in the church, in his body. 
Now, depending on the context, however, depending on the context of the verse, we can know the meaning. Generally, a mountain is a place of power or strength. Most times it refers to God's power, God's strength, the security of God for His people. This is why Jesus often retired to a mountain. You ever thought, why didn't He go to the synagogue? Why didn't He go into the desert? Why, why is it He retired into a mountain? Well, He retired back into the strength and the security of the Lord, so as to be refreshed. We see this in Luke 9.28. And it came to pass at about the eighth Days after these sayings, he took Peter, John, and James and went up into a mountain to pray. That's who he was praying. And it is in the mountain of the Lord where Jesus sits with his disciples in John 6, 3. And Jesus went up into a mountain and there he sat with his disciples. But in Matthew 17 and Matthew 21, Jesus uses this idea, this analogy of a mountain in a very different fashion to describe strength but the strength of the wicked. Know what he says. Matthew seventeen twenty and 21, 21. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. This goes along with the idea that the saints will be able to subdue the enemy, because here the mountain is a reference to the strength of the enemy. And what is God saying? He says, you will be victorious against the strength of the enemy, because we are given the strength of the Lord. So this goes along with that whole idea that the people of God will be able to subdue the enemy as a result of being more than conquerors. Now one final thought. When Jesus, now remember what it said in Matthew 21. Say to the mountain, be thou removed, and thou shalt be cast into the sea. Okay, you're going to be destroyed, you're going to be cast into the sea. When Jesus cast out legion from the man who was out of his mind with madness, he sent legion into the swine who were feeding in a mountain. Speaking of the strength of the wicked, or even the wicked in the mountain of God that had to be cast out, as he wanted to cast out the scribes and the Pharisees from the temple of God because they were apostate. To be sure they were not feeding as righteous men in the mountain of God, but they were taking over the strength, the mountain of God, by the strength of man, and in the strength of man's rebellion. And he says in Luke chapter 8, verse 32, And there was there and heard of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they brought him that he would suffer them to enter in, and he suffered them. And what did he do? He cast them into the sea, just like he's saying to the mountain. David himself looked to the mountain of God for his safety. As he states in Psalm 87, his foundation was in God's holy mountains. It was within the security of God's righteousness, not his own, that David hoped for. As he stated in Psalm 36, Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. In the same way that Jesus departed into the mountain for safety from his enemies, so too does David depart to hide from Saul in the mountain. David says this, in Psalm 125 too, As the mountains are around about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. 
David was now safe in the hand of God. Only because he sought the counsel of God. Seeking the counsel of God, he was now saved from the wrath of Saul. Because he hid himself in God and he trusted in God's protection. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God delivered not into his hand because David had hid himself in God's security. We shall continue to trace the history of the future king of Israel when we return to our exposition in the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.